good evening, ladies. Do you believe that tonight? Do you believe it? <laughs> you are awesome. You are creative. You are smart. You are beautiful. And you, ladies, are God's grand finale. I want you to think about this for just a minute. When God created the heavens and the earth and, and everything we see, he said it is good, right? But then when he created man, he said it is not good for man to be alone. So then he fashioned woman. That's the actual Hebrew word that was used in Genesis. He fashioned woman. So, and we've been interested in fashion ever since, so it's not our fault, right? But he fashioned woman. He took meticulous care of when he created you. And then you know what? He, after he created woman, he was done, right? So you think about it. You were the grand finale of all creation. Isn't that cool? I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, you were awesome. You were awesome. And you are looking good tonight. Um, how many of you have had a busy week? Got some hands? Can barely see with the lights. You got some hands? Okay. Um, how many have had a day or a week maybe that didn't turn out like you thought it would? Got some of those? I am right here with you. You know, I read this about a man whose day did not turn out like he thought it would. Actually, he's told God one night that he was sick and tired of going to work every day where his wife merely got to stay home and do nothing. That's what he said. So he said this prayer, Dear Lord, I go to work every day and put in eight hours when my wife merely gets to stay at home. I want her to know what I go through. So please, Lord, allow her body to switch with mine for one day. So God, in his infinite wisdom, granted the man's request, and the next day he woke up as a woman. He arose, he cooked breakfast, he awakened the kids, he set out their clothes, he fed them breakfast, he packed their lunches, he drove them to school, he came home, he picked up the cleaning, he took it to the cleaners, he stopped at the bank to make a deposit, he went grocery shopping, he drove home to put the groceries away. He paid the bills, he balanced the checkbook, he cleaned the cat's litter box, he bathed the dog, and then it was already 1 p.m. Then he hurried to make the beds, to do the laundry, to vacuum, to dust, to sweep, to mop the kitchen floor. Then he ran to pick up the kids from school. He got in an argument with them on the way home. He set out their milk and cookies and got them doing their homework. Then he set up his ironing board and watched television while he did his ironing. At 4.30, he began peeling potatoes for supper. After supper, he cleaned the kitchen, ran the dishwasher, folded the laundry, bathed the kids, and put them to bed. And at 9 p.m., he was exhausted. And even though his daily chores were not finished, he went to bed where he was expected to, let's just say, be romantic, which he managed to get through without complaint. Well, the next morning he awoke and immediately knelt by the bed and he prayed, Lord, I don't know what I was thinking. I was so wrong to envy my wife from being able to stay at home all day. Please, Lord, please let it change back to the way things were. And then God said, in his infinite wisdom, Son, I feel like you have learned your lesson, and I'll be happy to change things back to the way the things were. But you're going to have to wait nine months because last night you got pregnant. <laughs> Serves him right. That guy's day did not turn out like he thought it would. Well, you know what? We're going to be looking at a man this weekend whose life did not turn out the way he thought it would. And that man's name is Moses. Now, if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 3 tonight. And while you're turning there, we're going to have most of the scripture up on the screen, but sometimes it's fun to read it in your own Bible. Um, catch you up to where Moses is in, in chapter 3 of Exodus. See, when we flip over to Exodus chapter 1, God's people, his chosen people, are in Egypt. 
there'd been a guy named Joseph back in Genesis, and um, he'd had some things happen in his life, and he ended up moving to Egypt, and then all his family came up to Egypt, and several, several years had passed, and those Israelites had multiplied greatly. And the Pharaoh looked out, and he thought, you know what, there's so many of them here that if some we get in a fight with some other country, some other king, they could join them and they could take over. So he decided to make them all slaves. He thought that would suppress them. But instead of suppressing them, it just made them stronger. And they continued to multiply greatly. Listen, that'll preach. I'm not going to preach on that tonight. But, you know, when the enemy wants to use against you to break you down, if you've allowed it, it'll make you stronger. Anybody know that in this room tonight? And it just made them stronger. So we came up with another plan. It also failed. Finally came up with a plan. The Pharaoh did that all the girl Israelite babies or Hebrews, they're the same people. He said the, the Hebrew girl babies, you can let them live. But the boy babies, when they're born, you got to throw them in the Nile. Well, this one woman had a baby. We later learned her name was Jacobed. She had this beautiful baby. And she hid him for a while, as long as she could. But then she decided she was going to have to obey the Pharaoh and throw him in the Nile. But first, y'all know the story, she made him a little basket, right? Made this little basket. The actual Hebrew word, which is the original language of the Old Testament, is ark. She made him a little ark. And then she put it in the Nile River. And then she prayed that someone would come by and save her baby. And who should come by but the one person that could do anything in the kingdom she wanted to, the Pharaoh's daughter. So she comes by the Nile. She hears a cry from that little basket floating in the water, asks her maid that was with her to go and, and get the basket, pulls the covers back, sees this beautiful baby, and decides that she is going to adopt him and make him her own. She's the one that actually named him Moses, which means drawn out of water. So she adopts Moses as her own. He grows up in the Pharaoh's household. He has a lot of power. It tells us in Acts that he was also eloquent in speech which will come in, we're going to think about that a little bit later. So here he was, he gets to age 40. And somehow, Moses found out that he was really not an Egyptian, but he was a Hebrew. Now, we don't know how he found out, the Bible doesn't tell us. We know in the movie, The Ten Commandments, that Charleston Heston found his Hebrew baby blanket and the cat was out of the bag. But we don't know how he found out, but he found out. Now, when he found out that he was really a Hebrew, Moses came up with a plan all on his own that he was going to save his people. Listen, anytime we come up with a plan all on our own without God calling us to it, it's probably not going to work out very well. And it didn't. He failed terribly, and then he ran. His people didn't want his help. They made fun of him, and the Pharaoh was out to kill him. So he failed, and then he bailed. I don't know if anybody else done that. I've done that. I have failed and I have bailed. And he failed and he ran. Ran to a place called Midian. Uh, married a woman there named Zipporah. Joined the family business taking care of sheep. So when we see him in chapter 3, he's now 80 years old. He's been in the, taking care of sheep for 40 years. 80 years old. That tells me if you're not dead, God's not done. Amen. And God was not done with him. So he's out there taking care of sheep. It tells us in scripture that he is on the far side of the wilderness. And you know, you might be here tonight feeling like you're on the far side of the wilderness, just in a really dry place. And that's okay. Sometimes that's a really good place to be because that means God's about to get your attention. So he was out there taking care of sheep. And let's pick up in verse 
3. It says, now Moses, here we go. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There an angel of the Lord appeared to him and flamed the fire from within the bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to Moses from the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. So think about it. Moses is out there just minding his own business. And then once God saw that he had his attention, he started to speak to him. Sometimes God is waiting to know that he has our attention before he speaks to us. And once God saw that he had his attention, he began speaking through this burning bush. Now, this gives me great encouragement because I don't know if you know much about desert bushes, but God didn't speak through a rose bush or a, a geranium. He didn't speak through a hydrangea bush, rhododendron bush. God spoke through a gnarly old dried up desert bush, prickly thing. And that tells me when God's going to speak through somebody, any old bush will do. Any old bush will do. That should give all of us great hope. So he starts speaking through this gnarly old dried up bush, and it's on fire. So Moses turns aside, and he begins to speak. Let's look at verse 5. God said, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you were standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. Turn your neighbor and say, God sees. He said, I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. Tell your neighbor, God hears. He said, I am concerned about their suffering. Say, God is concerned. He said, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. This was sounding good to Moses. He said, I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. And this was sounding so good to Moses. I mean, this is what he wanted 40 years ago, right? He's thinking God sees, God hears, God concerns. God is going to rescue. He is getting excited. And I think probably that dream of someone rescuing those people was all coming back. And he was excited until this next verse. So let's look at the next one. In verse 10, God said, So now, go, I am sending you to the Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And I imagine at this point, this is where Moses starts backing up. And he said, God, I'm glad you see and you hear and you're concerned and you're going to rescue. But don't look at me. Don't you think he was thinking that? Don't look at this 80-year-old man. I already tried that one time 40 years ago, and it didn't work out so well. And he started arguing with God, telling God all the reasons that he had the wrong person for the job. And we're going to look at those four arguments that Moses had with God this weekend. See, at some point, God is going to call you to go through a trial or a tribulation. Maybe he's going to give you a terrific opportunity. He's going to call you to something. And at that point, you're going to have to answer God's call and believe that you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. 
Or you might pretend you didn't hear the call. Maybe not say no to God, but just kind of pretend you didn't hear it. Have what I call the paralysis of analysis, and you keep on praying about it until God turns around and chooses somebody else. But we have to know the answer to these four questions that Moses asked God. We're going to look at the first two tonight. The first thing, argument that, that Moses had was in verse 11. He said, God, who am I that I should go and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? See, in order to have unshakable confidence in Christ to do everything that he has called you to do, you have to know the answer to that question. Sweet Cindy that I've had the opportunity to get to know, she, can I tell this about you? I'm going to tell it about you anyway because I can't see your head if you're shaking it. But she used to be so afraid. She would never have stood up in front of you guys and made an announcement a couple years ago. But see, now she knows that God can do that through her. She knows who she is. And this is something Moses didn't know who he really was. And I can tell you for the longest time, I had no idea who I really was. Um, I was raised in a little town in North Carolina called Rocky Mount. I know nobody's heard of Rocky Mount in this room. Anybody? Oh, you have? That is very strange. But Rocky Mount is this little teeny town in North Carolina. And I was raised there, and it was kind of a nice place to grow up, um, kind of quiet, lived in a beautiful little neighborhood, and uh, my father was a businessman. He was part owner of a, a lumber company, um, had a good, a good job. My mom had her own business. She had a little craft shop and taught painting classes, and, and we looked like a pretty successful family. We um, lived in a ranch house. We had azaleas that bloom in the spring, and we had those tall pine trees that would rain down pine straw that we would have to rake up, and now I pay $4 a bunch for. I can't believe it. But we lived in a nice neighborhood, and people thought we were a typical American family. Um, I had a brother that was five years older than me, and I had a collie dog named Lassie. Of course, it was named Lassie. didn't matter that it was a boy collie. It was named Lassie because that was Lassie on television. So we looked like we are just a nice little family, but there was a secret behind the door of that pretty home. And the secret was that my father had a terrible drinking problem. Now, when my father would drink, he never drank a little bit. He would always get drunk. And when he got drunk, he would become very, very violent. And it was very cyclical in my house. Now that I'm grown and have studied, I, I realized that my father had something called intermittent rage disorder. And as a child, I grew up never knowing when that rage was going to come out. When my father would get angry and and drunk, he would become very violent. He would smash things in my house. He would break things, and he would beat my mom. And he would hit my mom, and she was an angry, bitter woman. And she would throw things at him, and there would be swearing and cursing. And I, I hear them hitting each other, and, y'all, I was terrified. I remember going in my, my room at night and pulling up the covers and just praying I could hurry up and go to sleep. I remember getting in bed with my brother and both of us just being so terrified about what was going on in that next room. And I had a little pink jewelry box. I bet some of you remember those. I think they still make them. But it was this little jewelry box. And when the yelling and the screaming was going on, I'd get up and turn a key in the back and I'd open a lid and a little ballerina would pop up. Remember those? And I would turn that key and listen because... I wanted that music to drown out what I was hearing in the other room. And I wanted to be that ballerina, but not where I was. By the time I was 12 years old, I, I felt like nobody cared about me. Nobody loved me. I was always in the way. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't smart enough. 
not pretty enough. Just all these I'm not enoughs. And I felt like I was just subpar, just really a throwaway person. That nobody could ever love me. If my parents didn't love me, how could anybody else love me? I had like a grid system over my mind. If, you, if you're a cook, you know how you sieve flour through a sieve. And every thought that I had had to go through that sieve before it entered my little girl mind. Just to that, that screen of not being good enough. But God didn't leave me that way. Don't you love those words, but God? My two favorite words in the Bible. God did not leave me that way. See, when, when I was 12 years old, I started spending a lot of time down at my neighbor's home. It was the Henderson's home. Their little girl, Wanda, was my 12-year-old best friend. She had red hair. And I loved being down at Wanda's home, mainly because of her parents. Because Mr. and Mrs. Henderson loved each other so much. And I loved being around that. You know what else I loved? I loved the way Mr. Henderson treated his two daughters. See, even though I was terrified of my father, I still had an ache in my little girl heart that I wanted a daddy who loved me. I wanted a daddy like Wanda had, one where I could crawl up in his lap or walk hand in hand with him, one that would kiss me on the cheek. My dad never touched me. And I wanted a daddy like they had. And I didn't know why their marriage was so different, but I knew it had something to do with Jesus. Because, see, Mrs. Henderson, as much as I loved her, I thought she was really strange. Because she would walk around the house, sing a little praise songs about Jesus. And she talked about Jesus like she knew him personally. And that was really strange to me. See, my family, with the alcohol, there was pornography, there was gambling. My father had affairs. I mean, you name it. All that went on at that home, as bad as we were, we went to church on Sundays. And we would walk through those doors, and people would say, how are you today? And what did we say? Fine. We're just fine. Listen, we were anything but fine. But I started going to church with the Hendersons when I would spend the night with Wanda on Saturday nights. And you know what I found? I found there was a whole group of people at that church that talked about Jesus like they knew him personally. Now, listen, this is not a denominational issue at all. These two churches, the one we went to and this other one I was going to, same denomination. One taught the Bible and how to have a relationship with Jesus, and one was simply religion. And I started to figure out there's a big difference between having a religion in your life and having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, Mrs. Henderson, she continued to mentor me. And y'all, I was not particularly a girl you would want your 12-year-old hanging out with. I had a lot of problems. But Mrs. Henderson saw something in me, and she began to love me and mentor me, and she told me I did have a father who loved me. I had a heavenly father who loved me, who adored me, so much so that he gave his son Jesus on this cross so that I could have eternal life when I left this place, when I accept, if I would accept him as my Savior, and I could have abundant life while I lived here. She started a Bible study in the neighborhood for teenagers. I went to that, drank in every word. And then when I was 14, this is two years later, how patient was she? She sat me down one night and asked me if I was ready to accept Jesus. And I did. And you know what? He did change my life. The problem was I had to go back home into that violent environment. But I'm going to tell you tomorrow what happened when I went back. But let's go back to this 14-year-old girl right now. 
So I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. Now, remember all those feelings of inferiority and insecurity and inadequacy? Did that go away the moment I accepted Christ? What do you think? No, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, after I became a Christian, I felt a little bit worse about myself after a while because now I had a new I'm not good enough. I'm not a good enough Christian. I can't pray like other people. I can't memorize scripture like other people. And I kept messing up doing the same things that I did before. So now I thought I am just a not a good enough Christian. But I plowed ahead, graduated from high school, went off to college. And one night, I walked into this Bible study in college. Y'all, I saw this handsome hunk of a man sitting on the floor at this Bible study. He had on scruffy jeans, his face needed a shave, and he had this red flannel shirt rolled up his sleeve. He looked like the Christian Marlboro Man. Got any people old enough to remember the Marlboro Man? He was the Marlboro Man. But instead of a cigarette, he had a Bible in his lap, and I thought, I am going to marry that guy. And I did real quick. We did not date very long. We got married. That was 36 years ago. Yay. Go God. We met got married quick, um, had a child three and a half years later, and I was just chugging right along. Started going to church and going to those Bible studies for those young moms. But you know what? I never felt like I measured up to those other young moms in the church, those young moms with those babies on their hips and those smiles on their faces with their Bibles. But you know what? I had one of those smiles just like they did, and they were probably feeling the same way I felt. But us girls have a good way of covering that up, don't we? Listen, if somebody comes in your church with a smile on their face, that means one thing. They do not have paralysis of the facial muscles. That's all it means. It does not tell you what's in their heart. You know, I went to those Bible studies, and, and after a while, I started teaching some of them. I started writing some of those, those um, Bible studies. But I always watched them around with this feeling that one day I was going to be found out. One day people were going to figure out that I was not all I was cracked up to be. And they were going to find out. Well, there was this woman in my church. Um, her name was Mary Marshall. And she began to mentor me. She could tell something wasn't quite right. Uh, Mary Marshall began to mentor me. You know, it's so weird when I said this older woman in my church because she was the age that I am right now. And it makes me a little sick to say that, to be honest with you. But there was this older woman in the church, and she started teaching me about my true identity as a child of God. You know, when I became a Christian, I knew I was going to heaven. I got that. But that whole abundant life thing, that was a mystery to me. And why did I keep struggling all the time with the same old stuff? Mary Marshall said, you have no idea who you really are as a child of God. I want you to go back, she told me, and write down every verse in the New Testament about how God sees you, about your true identity as a child of God. That was in my 30s, so I started making that list. She taught me this verse. I knew this verse in 2 Corinthians, but I didn't truly understand it. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The old is gone, the new has come. So I started writing down these verses. I'm going to read you a few of these verses tonight. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is who the Bible says that you are. 
It says in scriptures that you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are valuable to God. You are indwelled by Christ. His spirit lives in you. You are a branch of the true vine. You are Christ's friend. You are chosen. You are dearly loved. You are justified. You've been reconciled to God. You are set free from sin. You're a slave of righteousness. You are free from condemnation. You are free in Christ. You're a child of God, a co-heir with Christ. You're more than a conqueror in Christ. You're accepted by Christ. You have the mind of Christ. You're a temple of God. You're part of Christ's body. You're the fragrance of Christ. You're a new creation. You're the righteousness of in Christ. You are righteous in Christ. You're an ambassador for Christ. You're a minister of reconciliation. You're redeemed from the curse of the law. You're a saint. A saint does not mean perfect. A saint means that you have been set apart for holy use. You know, I used to ask people all the time, how many of you would say that you are a sinner saved by grace? Got any hands? Anybody say you're a sinner saved by grace? Got a few hands? How many would say that who you are is a saint? Got any hands? Now, uh, the rest of you must not know who you are. We're going to do that one more time. How many would say that you're a sinner saved by grace? Raise your hand. How many would say that who you are is that you're a saint? Oh, we got some hands. Y'all, I get so excited about these saints. Let me tell you. Nowhere in Scripture, when I, I would hear this thing about I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I thought, okay, show me that. But once you become a Christian, God doesn't look at you and say, oh, there's that sinner saved by grace. You know what he does? He looks at you and says, there's that saint. There's that person that's been set apart for holy use. Because, see, you cannot act differently than you think. Let me say that one more time. You cannot act differently than you think. So if you think at the core of your being, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, guess what you're going to act like? Just a sinner saved by grace. Bless your heart. Bless my heart. But if you believe that you are a saint, that you've been set apart for holy use, that's what you're going to act like. We have to change our mind. Now, we do something at Girlfriends and God, um, and you're going to feel weird because this is kind of a small group. But Mary Sutherland, um, and by the way, if you don't know what Girlfriends and God is, um, Cindy mentioned that. It's a daily devotion that, that comes. You can sign up at girlfriendsingod.com, and it comes to your house every day. We have three main writers and then some other writers. But Mary Sutherland, she has several grandchildren. She's one of the writers. And when her grandson says the blessing, he's five, he thinks it's very boring to say amen. So he goes, amen, hallelujah, woo, woo. He does that every time. Let me see if y'all can do that. You ready? Amen, hallelujah, woo, woo. Y'all did that pretty good. So good that I'm going to read the other side of this card and see if it gets you excited. The Bible also says that you've been adopted to God's family. You're redeemed and forgiven through Christ's blood. You were chosen by God. You're sealed by God with the Holy Spirit. You're now alive with Christ. You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared for you to do in advance. You're fellow citizen with God's people. You're able to do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You're a citizen of heaven. You've been rescued from the domain of darkness. You've been transferred to the kingdom of Christ. You are holy in God's sight. You're complete in Christ. You have the mind of Christ. You were hidden with Christ in God. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're an alien and a stranger in this world you temporarily live in. When you read the news, do you not feel that you are an alien and a stranger in this world you temporarily live in? I know I do. You're an enemy of the devil. You're forgiven of your sins. You're now a child of God. You are born of God, and the evil one cannot hurt you, and you are the bride of Christ. Amen? Hallelujah? Woo, woo! Awesome. You got it. You know, I, I made my list, and I put it on my refrigerator, and I put it on my, my bathroom mirror, but I will tell you the truth. It did not feel right. 
I would read those verses and it didn't feel right, didn't sound right, and it made me uncomfortable. It made me uncomfortable. But God was asking me, who are you going to believe? See, we have to ask the question, do we believe the Bible's true? Do you believe that this book is true? Do you believe it's true? If we believe it's true, then we have to believe it's true about what God says about who we are. There was a bumper sticker back in the 80s, and it said, God said it, I believe it. Anybody know when it comes next? That settles it. Listen, God said it, and that settles it, whether I believe it or not. Amen? But it's not going to have power in your life until you, until you believe it. God's word is not going to have power in your life until you do believe it. It's already settled, but it can still be powerless in your life if you don't believe it. Listen to this verse in Ephesians. um, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he, he said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And listen to this. His incomparably great power to who? For us who believe, you have incomparably great power once you believe. Then he goes on to say, that power is the same as the mighty strength that he, God, exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and sealed, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realm, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. You have access to the same power. I didn't make this up. I didn't say it. Paul said it. You have access to the same type of power that raised Jesus from the dead when you believe God's word is true in your life. But the devil was saying to me about that last, are you kidding? You think that's true about you? Who are you kidding? Remember what you did. That's not true about you. You know, the devil knows exactly who you are. He can't make it any more less true than it is, right? But if he can make you feel that it's not true, then he's won. And that's his goal, to keep you from believing the truth and to make you feel like those verses are not true about you. Now, God, this is really strange, but God speaks to me in the comics, in the funny paper. I mean, it says a lot about my intellect, I know, but, but God does speak to me in the funny paper. And uh, we have a, a comic strip called Pickles in Charlotte, where I live. It, do y'all get pickles here? No, you don't have pickles. Well, pickles is a comic strip about an older couple, um, Earl and Pearl Pickles. So they're out on the swing one day. Let's look at them. They're out on the swing. And Pearl says to Earl, did you know that the DNA of humans and chimpanzees is 96% the same? Earl says, yes, I do know that, but I don't believe it, though. She said, you know it, but you don't believe it? And he says, absolutely. I don't believe everything I know. And when I read that, God said, and that is your problem. You were going to Bible studies. You were going to church. You know the word of God, but you don't believe everything you know. And as long as we don't believe what we know, we just might as well quit on putting, stop putting more stuff in our heads, right? God is saying, if you just believe what you know right now, you have a lot of power in your life. Believe the word of God. Don't just read it and study it and tear it apart. Believe what you are studying. Believe the word of God. And God says, who are you going to believe? 
Are you going to believe my word? Are you going to believe the lies that you've heard from your past? Are you going to believe the lies that an enemy continues to tell you? Who are you going to believe? And I said, God, you know what? I'm going to believe you. I don't feel it. I can barely think it. But I'm going to choose to believe you. And once I started choosing to believe God's word was true for me, you know what happened? God began to change my mind. He began to change the way that I think. That's how timid Cindy can get up here now and and hold that microphone and look you in the eye. That's how this little dental hygienist, that was my degree in college, who was scared to death and shy, who couldn't even spell, that's how this person writes books today. Because I started believing who, that I was who God said he wouldn't, that he would do whatever he called me to do. He didn't call the qualified, but he qualified the called. Amen? And if he calls you to something, he will give you the power to do it. But you have to start moving forward. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, many times we try to change the way we act. But remember what I've already said. We cannot act differently than we think. So we begin to change the way we think, and then our actions and our emotions will follow. Who are you going to believe? The God who made you fearfully and wonderfully? Now, listen, God made you fearfully and wonderfully. He did not make you to be fearful. He did not create you to be fearful. He fearfully made you. You are awesome in his sight. You're going to believe God or you're going to believe the deceiver? Whose voice are you going to listen to? Because, see, the voice you listen to will determine your destiny. And we need to lean into the promises of God. We need to listen to the promises of God rather than to the lies of the devil. Now let's go back to Moses. Who am I that I should go to the Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Let's look at God's response in verse 12. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship me on this mountain. Basically, God was saying, I'm going to be with you, and that's all you need to succeed. I'm going to be with you. But, you know, and it isn't isn't it just a relief to know that God's with us all the time? I mean, he'll never leave us and forsake us, right? He is with us all the time. But we have something better than Moses ever had. Because not only do we have God with us, we have Jesus Christ in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. We've got something better that Moses ever had. You are in Jesus and Jesus is in you. you know, we kind of get this concept of having Jesus in us. We hear that from the time we're little, some of us, if we were raised in the church. But the idea of us being in Jesus That is harder to imagine, isn't it? And yet every time in Scripture, if you look at the times where it says that you have Jesus in you or you are in Jesus, there are ten times more that says that we are in him than the ones that say that he is in us. Jesus said this in John 14, right before he was going to the cross. He said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And then he says this, and on that day you will realize that I am in my Father, 
And you are in me, and I am in you. So you're in him, and he's in you. Again, easier to imagine him and you, harder for you and him. Let me give you this example. This really helped me see this one day. Uh, my son, who, um, he was about four or five years old, and we decided we were going to take him snow skiing for the first time. I don't know what I was thinking. It's way too little. But we put him in the snowsuit, he had on the clunky boots, the little mitts. He was walking around like this. It was cold. He was whining. It was not any fun, not at all. So I'm doing this thing called the rope toe. Do y'all ski around here? Doesn't seem like it's too hot here. No, I didn't think so. So there's this thing called a rope toe. You're on the little bunny slope, and you hold a rope, and it pulls you up. This is for the people that are too little to go down on the, the chair lifts that you've seen. So I'm holding that rope. I've got this kid, and I've got skis, and I'm going up this thing. It is, y'all, he is whining, he's crying. I'm thinking, this is crazy. He kept falling. He just didn't want to get up. And finally, I said, okay, we're going to do something different. So let me get away from these flowers. So what I did, I said, Stephen, we're going to ride in this chair up to that top of that mountain. We went up to the top of the mountain. And then we got off that chairlift, and I said, now, I want to put you right in front of me, and you just wrap your arms around my legs. He's about this top. Wrap your arms around my legs. That's all you got to do. So he wraps his arms around my legs, and we go down that mountain. He's right. He's hanging on. If I go right, he goes right. If I go left, he goes right, left. And he's going, I'm skiing, I'm skiing. Now, we know that he wasn't skiing, right? I was skiing. He was just holding on. And that's how it is when you are in Christ. See, it looks like we're doing it. We're not doing anything. All we're doing is hanging on. We're just listening and obeying and doing what he's called us to do. That's a beautiful picture God gave me of just hanging on to him, hanging on to Jesus. So you've got something that Moses never even thought of happening. Brand new creature in Christ. Now, why is it so important that we need to know who we are? You've got to know who you are before you can do what God's called you to do. Identity always comes before activity. You know, even with Jesus, let's think about this for just a minute. Before Jesus started his earthly ministry, he went down and he got baptized. Remember, baptized by John, his cousin. He comes up out of the water and God says, This is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. See, he's establishing his identity, right? Jesus hadn't even done anything yet. Not one miracle. Nothing. See, God wanted him to, he reiterated to him, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. He established his identity before the ministry began. But I also want to remind you of this. As soon as he did that and he reminded him of who he was as a child, that he was his son, what happened next? Went to the wilderness, right? And Satan said, if you are the son of God, turn this stone to bread. What do you mean if? He just told him he was in the chapter before, right? But see, that's what Satan does. And that's what he's going to do to you. He might be doing it to you right now. But you're going to walk out that door. Satan's going to do the same thing. That list she read, huh, that's not true about you. It's basically what he was doing to Jesus. If you're God's son, jump off this cliff. And how did Jesus fight that? We're going to talk more about that tomorrow. 
But every time, he just replaced that lie with the truth, didn't he? And that's the same way that we fight him too. God wants me to tell you tonight, if you know Jesus, you are his daughter, whom he loves, and with you he is well pleased. Amen? Hallelujah? Woo, woo! Do it one more time. Amen? Hallelujah? Woo, woo! That's pretty good. Y'all getting it. Now, Cindy mentioned a book that I've written, which I'm speaking from tonight, called Take Hold of the Faith You Long For. And in that book, I talk about these truths, but I set up this picture. How many of you have ever seen a trapeze artist on television or at the circus? You've seen a trapeze artist. Well, you know what happens is there's a trapeze artist on a platform, and he, he or she swings forward once. If you watch, he swings back, and usually on the third swing, once they've got the momentum, they take hold of another trapeze artist. That's when they do the flips and the somersaults and the triple twists. But suppose when that trapeze artist took hold of that second one, he refused to let go of the first one. Now, what would happen? He'd be stuck, wouldn't he? Would not be the greatest show on earth. And he'd just be hanging there. And as I was watching that one time, God said, that's where a lot of Christians are right now. They want to take hold of everything I have for them, but they're refusing to let go of some things. And they're stuck. And they're stuck. If you've never seen a trapeze artist, you've probably seen somebody on a monkey bars, seen kids on monkey bars. And I think about this as our journey. See, God shows us something, and we take hold of it, just like on the monkey bars. But what, in order to move forward, you've got to let go of something and reach over and take hold of this one. God shows you a new truth. You've got to let go of something else, move on and take hold, take hold, take hold. And that makes you move forward. Listen to this verse. Paul wrote, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now, this is how the Amplified Version says it. The Amplified Version kind of defines some of the words in the verse. It says, I press on to lay hold of, to grasp and make my own. There's the key. Make my own that for which Christ Jesus, the Messiah, has laid hold of me and made me his own. We want to take hold of everything God has for us. But in order to take hold of it, we've got to let go of some things. Everything that holds us hostage to a less than life. And this first point that I want to make tonight is for us to move forward in our identity in Christ, we've got to take hold and make it our own. We're going to believe what the word says. But we've got to let go of those feelings of inferiority and insecurity and inadequacy. All those lies you've heard in the past, the things you tell yourself, the things that Satan says to you, and then you repeat them. He comes in, he goes, you're no good. And then you're thinking, I'm no good. You think it's you, but it's him. Well, he knows where your weak spots are. All those lies that you've been telling yourself. Oh, I just want to jump ahead to session three. But those lies are anything that don't line up with the word of God. If you've been telling yourself something about yourself that doesn't line up with the word of God, it is a lie. And we need to let go of it and take hold of the truth. Take hold of your true identity as a child of God. Phew, that's all in the first question. Now let's look at the second question that, that Moses asked. This one's going to be a little shorter. Let's go to Exodus 3.13. Moses is continuing to argue. Well, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is his name? Then what will I tell him? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. Can you imagine that answer? I mean, it's probably like Moses, you know, he's talking to this bush, and let's say this is a bush, and he says, I am that I am. And he's probably thinking, you know, the reception is really bad on this side of the bush. Um, I didn't quite, I got the first part, the I am. Let me go over here. I am what? Or I am who? And God says, I am that I am. That's what you're to tell them. I just am. I just am. You heard me right. That Hebrew word, name of God, you know, God has many names in the Old Testament. I've written a book with Mary and Gwen, the girlfriends and God. We wrote about 40 of our favorite names. He's El Roi, the God who sees. He's Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He's Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. But this one, I am, is Yahweh. It's used 6,800 times in the Old Testament. And it, it just speaks to the present tenseness of God. He always has been. He always will be. You can't impeach him and he's not going to resign, as one pastor says. Just always will be. It just says it all. Tell to somebody and just say, he just is. He just is. He just is. The Bible says this, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You know, every woman in this room, and probably some of those guys in the sound room, we're going to struggle with feelings of inferiority and insecurity and inadequacy. That feeling that we're not enough. That we're not blank enough. That's the primary underlying lie from the insecurities we feel. And you know, when I say I am not enough, you know what God says to me? He says, I am. That's what he says. He says, I am. When I say I'm not strong enough, experienced enough, organized enough, bold enough, God says, I am. Because he is the God who fills in your blanks. Now, I want us to practice something tonight. We're going we're gonna to spot the knot and swat the knot is what I call it. I want you to pay attention over the next few weeks. Every time you say that you are not enough in some area of your life. When you say, I am not enough, what does God say? I am. Okay. When you say, I am not smart enough, God says, I want you to do it louder and I can mean it. Okay? You're talking to the devil tonight. When you say, I'm not talented enough, God says, I am. I'm not patient enough, God says, I'm not loving enough, God says, I'm not caring enough, God says, I'm not wise enough, God says, I'm not strong enough, God says, I'm not outgoing enough, God says. I'm not secure enough, God says. I'm not bold enough, God says. I am not enough, God says. I am. And every time we say, I am not enough, God says, but I am. I am. And I will do it through you. That is what he was telling Moses. I will do it through you. And that was what he was telling me. I will do it through you and for you. And when the world says, they look at the situation we're in, and they say, no way. And they look at me and think about who I was in school and say, no way. Well, she could be doing that. You know what I say? Yahweh. Yeah. So the next time you were somebody and they say, no way, you're going to say what? Yahweh. Yahweh. He is the God who fills in our blanks. We need to let go of those feelings of inadequacy. And take hold of God's all-sufficiency. All-sufficiency. 
about mm, maybe 22 years ago, let me tell you this little story. Um, uh, there was a gal in town, um, she was starting a ministry, and this was in those first early stages where I was starting to write some Bible studies and write some stories, and I started writing the stories and put them in a file folder, then I had a file box drawer, then I had a file cabinet, and I felt like God was calling me to do something with the file cabinet. Somebody said, well, there's a gal in town starting a ministry, maybe you should talk to her. So I met with Lisa. And um, she told me she was starting this ministry called Proverbs 31 and that um, she was doing some radio spots. And she asked me to come on and do some spots with her on the radio. And after we finished recording, see, I had been praying for a year. I had this file cabinet. I was working as a hygienist, working in a crisis pregnancy, teaching in my church. Y'all, I stopped all of that. And I, for one year, I prayed, God, what do you want me to do? Now, I'm not saying I sat around and prayed all the time. I'm just saying I, I, I listen to God and just that, that feeling and that, that being in that state of, okay, Lord, what is it that you want me to do now? I knew it was something. So I recorded with Lisa, and um, she said, I've been praying for one year. That was not a coincidence. I've been praying for a year for a partner to help me get this ministry going, someone to take over the radio. And I said, Lisa, I don't know anything about radio. My voice is way too southern. Um, I, you know, I think you've got the wrong person for the job. I was Moses all over again. I said, you've, you've got the wrong person. But I pray about it because, you see, that's what nice girls in the South say. We know we're going to say no, right? But we say, I pray about it, very spiritual, with a smile. But you know what I did pray about it? Um, my husband and I, we went away for a vacation. My son at that time was in middle school. He was off at summer camp. And Steve and I went on a little romantic vacation. That was his idea. And he was thinking romance, romance. And I was thinking ministry, ministry. I admit it. Um, but one night we went to this, um, this place. It was a beautiful restaurant that had a little jazz band playing, like music from ballroom dance kind of music. And Steve and I had taken ballroom dance classes. So he said, uh, let's go up there and, and see if we can remember the foxtrot. Well, y'all, I was not going to go up there and be the only person up there dancing in front of all these people. I mean, it was like five times as many people in, in this room. And um, we're not talking about submission tonight, but I said, no, I will not go. I said, but maybe if there's some other people up there, I'll go where people won't be watching us. So we waited, and our first couple came up, and they had taken classes a lot longer than we had. And they moved around that room perfectly. Then another couple came, not so perfect. So I finally agreed to go, and I, I got behind this ficus bush where I didn't think anybody could see us. And I started, you know, doing the little boxes with my feet to the box trot. And I didn't want to look up because I just didn't want to know if anybody was looking at me, you know, because it's all about me, right? And then when I finally did look up, I noticed nobody was looking at me. What they were looking at was the fourth couple that was coming up to the dance floor. And what was precious about that fourth couple is that the husband was in a wheelchair. And they came up to that dance floor, smiling, happy. They were about our age. Um, the husband had a glove on one hand, probably had a skin disease, and his wife held his well hand and danced back and forth with him. She giggled, and she danced around his wheelchair, he would spin her, and she would stoop down really low so he could do that. 
Then the band played a slow song, and she pulled a chair up beside his wheelchair facing in the opposite direction and, and held her husband, and they closed their eyes and just swayed back and forth. And I had to bury my face in Steve's jacket so people couldn't see the tears just streaming down my cheeks. But then I looked up, and I looked at that big room full of people, and there were tears. I looked at the band, and there were tears. People weren't crying because they felt sorry for them. People were crying because this is an incredible display of love that we were getting to watch. And God began to speak to me on that floor. And I talk about God speaking to me. It's not audibly. It's just speaking to my heart. And he said, Sharon, I want you to notice, who moved that room to tears? Was it the first couple that had the perfect steps? Or was it the last couple who really didn't have any steps at all? But the wife did it for him. He said, you do what I have called you to do, and I will do it for you just like she did it for him. See, ladies, God is not looking for perfect people. Y'all know that, right? He's not looking for perfect women with perfect homes and perfect children and perfect lives. He is simply looking for women who will believe the truth about who they are who will believe that who is who, he is who he says that he is, and he will do it through you. That's who he's looking for. And I came back home and, and told Lisa yes, and I said, the only way I know to explain is that God sent a lame man to teach me how to dance. I told her yes, and I was there to help her for 10 years. Um, I'm still there a little bit, writing devotions for him. But I almost said no. And I think about what I would have missed. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived all that God has planned for those who, who love him. And that's you. You're equipped by God, you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you're enveloped in Jesus Christ. He's in you and he's around you. That's who you are. And who is God? He's the great I am that fills in your blanks. He is the God who calls you to more. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you that you have given us these Old Testament true stories that we can look back and learn about you from. I thank you for Moses, Lord, that, that we can see ourselves in him, especially in these first early chapters of this guy who felt like he did not have what it takes. Lord, I pray that we also will learn from his insecurities how we can overcome our insecurities to do everything that you have called us to do and to be everything that you have called us to be. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Ladies, as we close this session, I want you to turn your eyes to the screen and just as a remembrance, just jog our memory about who our God is.